Happy trails to you. It's great to say hello and to share with you the joy I've come to know. We define everything differently than the rest of the world. So I don't perceive this last congressional race as a loss. I see it as a victory because I walked in obedience with what the Lord called. What was really interesting is um, since that race, I've been a little bit busy. I haven't kind of taken time to stop. I, um, two weeks later, ran for Congress in another district. Really crazy. I don't know if any of you heard, but Tom Garrett stepped down, uh, said that he wasn't going to run again in, in the 5th district, and so I started getting calls. And I was just like, no way, no way, no way, thank you very much. You can find someone else. I don't even live in the district. Um, but I had so many people on the committee, the bulk of the committee calling me, asking me, will you please run? And so we, we did because, you know, the other side gets confused. They think people run because they want money and power. As Christians, we really do have, we are a living sacrifice. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so we use our giftings and our talents um, for God and for the betterment of mankind. And so we did step into that. And um, actually, there were four rounds of voting. We won the first three and lost the last one by one vote. And Jake and I walked out of there, and we had so many people just testifying, uh, talking about, you know, it was really healing after all the ugly stuff had been said about me to hear all of these people just gushing. And we walked out, and we both got in the car, and then we both looked at each other, and we burst out grinning because it was the best thing God could have done to have that many people in another district beg me, say things like, you know, the 6th district loss would be the 5th district's gain. We would be so honored if you would step up. And, and have that much support vote after vote, but then walk out of there with the relief of, oh, thank God, I don't have to keep running. So, um, so God did a good thing. But then also right after that, I, um, I, had, uh, I wrote a little booklet. So it just uh, got published um, and is out there, and we actually brought some today. It's God's Heart for Government. Um, because I'm, I'm on the board of Intercessors for America, and they were wanting to do booklets to kind of for the 4th of July. And so this is, it was really challenging to do this, though, as small as it is, to take three decades of knowledge on, on our constitutional republic and its framework for our Judeo-Christian underpinnings and put it in a tiny little booklet. But that's what this is. So um, we have that here today. If you want some, we have them for sale at the end, and, and we'd, be, uh, we'd love to share those with you. So as I was praying this morning, I'm like, God, you know, obviously I want to talk about the blessings that we have as Americans because we are, of all people, most blessed. We have the most amazing nation in the world, and I do believe that God intends for us to whom much is given, much is required. Um, and so, but giving that away, having that understanding of what government looks like and why is just very important. Um, and I think sometimes we take things for granted. We make assumptions. Now, I want to start out a little bit off topic, talking about the fact that there is no secular sacred divide. 
And it's really not off topic because when I start talking about government, you're going to understand that the reason that God's framework for government is important is because he does not have a single area that's not important to his heart. And as Christians, we should know that. Um, Colossians 1.16 says, God, all things are made by and through and for his glory. All things. So there's not an area in our life that does not, should not be sacred. And, um, and, you know, the Lord started showing me that there's a framework of how we deal with things. The world has reason as their basis for how they analyze everything. And then from that reason, they develop laws. And then from those laws, they impact their works, what they do. And as they do those works, it reaffirms the reason. And a simple example, you know, you have the reason of, oh, okay, if you eat too many calories more than you expend, you're going to gain weight, so I'm going to eat a, you know, a healthier diet. And then they see the fruits of that, it reaffirms the reason. Concepts, that's what they live by. Well, in the body of Christ, we have revelation. We have revelation of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What did he say? It is partially finished? No. He said, it is finished. The completed works of Jesus, when we encounter that and truly understand it, it builds, we come to that through what? Through faith. So that builds our faith because we understand who he is and what he has done. And from that faith, what do we do? We respond out of grace. We are saved by grace. Through what? Faith. It is a gift. It's not of works. Not of works. Not works. Not law and works. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Why am I juxtaposing these things as far as, you know, faith and grace versus law and works? Well, because I'm going to share a little personal testimony. I had taught at the law school about the Judeo-Christian framework, and I had taught about there is no secular sacred divide and why the, the law of God, how it impacts our understanding of civil government, they're connected, they're not disconnected because one is sacred, the Bible, and the other is secular, our constitution and our laws. But as I, as I did that, what I didn't realize is that I was still living as though there was a divide. I had coffee with a lovely lady who was talking about that scripture that says, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And I did just that. I got in the car and I started chuckling to myself. And the Holy Spirit in that still small voice said, you're laughing, but you live like that. And I had one of those epiphany wake-up moments because what I realized is I was only using the revelation, faith, and grace cycle in the areas of my eternal salvation, praying for healing, those things. But the rest of my life of putting bread on the table or what I did in career or whatever was still over here in reason, law, and works. And God wants to obliterate that division. Because he, when he said it is finished, he meant it. And so if he cares about every area, do we have any question that he cares about government? No. And, and I'll give you just some little tidbits. You know, there's basically only two kinds of law in all the political philosophers of all the ages, and I've studied them. You know, you go Aquinas and Augustine and 
Plato and you go through all of this, but there's really only two kinds of law. There's positive law and there's pre-existing law. And positive law is just a fancy phrase for simply man gets to make law. Man makes it up. Pre-existing is the belief that there's law that already exists and it's our duty to ascertain what those laws are. There's also two frameworks of government. There's a rex lex and a lex rex. A rex lex is simply the king is the law. And a lex rex is the law is the king. And we see lots of different societies where they use a rex lex, and it doesn't have to be just the king. It's where man, an empire of man, versus an empire of laws. And when you have an empire of man, it's man-made. It's positive law, and it's man's best determination of what's right. Do we want to live under that? No, we don't. And yet, we, we call ourselves many times, and I'm going to dispel a few myths, we talk about a democracy. We're a democracy. We are not a democracy. Because you know what? A rex lex, man-made system, it can be a king. It can be an oligarchy. It can be an aristocracy. It can be a democracy. It's any place where man, the ruler, determines what the law is, what's right or wrong. Do we see that kind of subjective analysis in our society today where majority opinion of man gets to decide what's right and wrong? Does that inherently not sit well with us as Christians? It should because we believe in a lex rex. We are a republic. We believe that the law is the king. And what is that law? And what did our founding fathers understand that law was? And this is all very important because it all goes back to the heart of God, of what really is right and wrong. And, you know, um, I want to take a moment here to just digress for a second because we do hear a lot of times, and, you know, it's funny because my daughter says, Mom, you should write a book on impolite conversations because all you ever talk about is religion and politics. Um, Two things you're, you know, never supposed to combine what I do all the time. But... We hear it's not about Republican, it's not about Democrat, it's not all of this stuff, and and that is absolutely true. I want to just point out, though, a lot of times I think what the enemy does is he comes in and he uses that as an excuse to let people think, well, it's all subjective. Some people believe this and some people believe that, and God bless them, that's their right to believe, and it doesn't have anything to do with the church. Well, that's just simply not true. The reality is it's like... You know, when Joshua encountered the angel and he said, are you on our side or their side? What was his response? The real point is, are we on God's side? And guess what? God has a side. And God speaks to all of these issues. And the only time either party is right or wrong or whatever doesn't really matter about the party, does it? It What matters is whether or not they're aligning with the principles of God. But that does not mean that there is no right or wrong. It does not mean that it's a subjective analysis for each person to become a law for themselves to determine whether or not they think socialism is good or lots of different issues that we don't touch on in the church. But God touches on all of them. And so I want to touch on a few of these things. So, you know, a lot of times we will hear things that, you know, America's not a Christian nation. 
So I want to kind of go over that a little bit because um, it's just simply not true. But it depends on how you define a Christian nation. And so 94% of the quotes of our founding fathers contemporaneous to our nation's founding were either directly or indirectly from the Bible. When I say directly, you know what I mean. They were quoting scripture. What's really funny is today when we quote a lot of those things, people don't know that they were quoting scripture because they simply, we don't know the Bible today. But indirectly, what were they doing? They were quoting other men who were quoting scripture. And the three most quoted were um, Montesquieu, Blackstone, and Locke in that order. And if you read what those men talked about, it's really enlightening Montesquieu talked about certain things like there should be uh, three branches of government, the monarchical or executive, the legislative, and judicial. Um, anybody have any idea where he got that? Isaiah 33, 22. Look it up. Because he talks about God being our judge and our lawgiver and our king. It is he alone who can save us. So uh, this is not man. This is God's idea. And then he talked about how you had checks and balances. The greatest government in the world, but if you didn't have checks and balances, um, so where does that come from? Jeremiah 17.9, the heart of man is wicked and deceptive. So we talk about our Constitution being a godless Constitution. How can it be a godless Constitution when the very framework of the Constitution itself is derived from a Judeo-Christian structure? Um, then you had Blackstone and Locke. Blackstone and Locke talked a lot about this thing called the laws of nature and nature's God. Now, I want you to remember that phrase because a lot of times you'll hear people talking about natural law, natural law, and natural law. And they think the two are the same. They are not at all. And our founding fathers did not establish natural law. They established a government on the basis of the laws of nature and nature's God. So what did Blackstone and Locke have to say about it? Well, Locke said that any law that was contrary to the laws of nature, nature's God, was ill-made. So obviously he had very little respect to it. But Blackstone went further. He said law was not law if it was contrary to the laws of nature and nature's God. Well, what in the world is the laws of nature and nature's God? Well, Blackstone, he defined it. And just so you know a little bit, this is not some, you know, off, Nobody knew about him. Blackstone was being read. He was the preeminent jurist of the day. He was the author of the commentaries on the laws of England, and 13 of all of the first 13 colonies at one point had adopted the common law. So they all knew this very well. And what he said was that the laws of nature is the will of our maker. And the laws of nature's God is that will revealed through the Holy Scripture. He goes on to talk about how if at our you know, first ancestor, sounds like a, a Bible study, he's like, if, our, if we had reason at the level of our first ancestor prior to the fall, then we could, our reason would be sufficient. We would just need the law of nature, the will of our maker. But because it's not, because sin entering in, we now have to look to the revealed law through the Holy Scripture. So this is not some kind of deistic ideology. This is solid biblical construct, and the bottom line was that our government was based upon the will of the maker revealed through the Holy Scripture. Now, how do I know that? Well, we talked about the Constitution. Let's talk about the Declaration, which actually founded us as a nation. In the very first paragraph, it says, when in the course of human events, 
it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which tie them to another and to acquire from among the powers of the earth that separate but equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle us. It is the very thesis statement of the Declaration, forming us as a nation, declaring to the world we are establishing a nation with a government based upon trying to align with the will of our maker as it's revealed through the Holy Scripture. I don't think it's coincidence. It's that's why um, a lot of people now jump over the first paragraph and try to start memorizing the Declaration at the second paragraph that says, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Also a great paragraph, but you would want to jump over that, wouldn't you, if you didn't want to know that our nation was birthed and founded upon pursuing the will of the maker as revealed through the Holy Scripture. Now, as Christians, that's not a little thing. It came to me one day as I was just praying, and I realized, wait, where have I heard will of our maker you know, establishing a government in this nation, thy will be done. Oh, my gosh. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's pretty overwhelming to realize that our founding fathers, whether they knew it or not, what they were doing, was they were actually undertaking a manifestation of the Lord's Prayer to say that we are going to establish a nation that is going to reflect the will of God here on earth. I don't know about you, but that gives me chills to think about. What a heritage we have, and yet it's being lost. It's being swept under the rugs because nobody even knows anymore who we are or the basis for our government. Um, and part of the reason that, that they don't, and I, and I did talk a little bit about a republic versus a democracy, so that's very important if, if the Declaration says it's basing its authority on the will of the makers revealed through the Holy Scripture. That is the foundation for the Declaration. And then the Constitution says its foundation is the Declaration, and it's founding in this our 12th year which is incorporation by reference, so 1787 to 1776 inclusively, 12 years. So you cannot, as John C. Quincy Adams said, you cannot rightly interpret the Constitution outside of the Declaration, which is its foundation, and the Declaration says its foundation is the will of our maker. So what does that make when the, when the Constitution says it's the supreme law of the land? What is the ultimate authority for our nation as law? The true lex, which is the will of our maker revealed through the Holy Scripture. That's a huge difference then when they talk about democracy, which is mob rule, majority opinion, versus the republic, constitutional republic, which bases it on the Constitution through the Declaration, through the laws of nature, nature's God. Which do we want? We clearly want the constitutional republic that's based on upholding the right law. Um, now, Part of the reason we've gotten so off base is because every nation, whether they know it or not, has a worldview. 
a predominant understanding of how you filter through things. I'm sure you've talked about worldviews in here, but it's, it's not only, a, my favorite quote for this is what C.S. Lewis talks about, I don't believe in the sun because I see it, I believe it because not only do I see it, but by it, I see everything. Your worldview is how you view everything. And at the time of our nation's founding, everyone spoke and thought Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. It does not mean they were all saved. It means they thought according to biblical principles. And it's the same thing today. We have a national worldview that we adopt. And it is not Christianity. It is secular humanism. And even Christians, many times, we don't even catch ourselves. I gave an example at the beginning of how we do the secular sacred divide. Why is that important? Because secularism teaches the existence of a secular realm. So we, even though we believe in the Bible, we still think many times through the filter of secular humanism. And so we can take these documents that were written from a Judeo-Christian viewpoint. I remember one time I was doing a debate on NPR And they were talking about Madison's Memorial Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments. And if you haven't read it, you need to. It's brilliant. And James Madison, who's known as the father of our Constitution, he talks, like in paragraph 12, about how those who have not come to the glorious of light of truth, for those who know it, and he's clearly using Christianity throughout the whole document, that it should be our first goal for all of them to come to that saving knowledge. That's evangelism. That is like bringing those under the dominion of darkness into the glorious light of truth. But she was using this document to prove that we were a godless nation, that we weren't a Christian nation. And I was sitting there, I'm like, waiting my turn. I'm like, this makes no sense at all. And all of a sudden, I had an epiphany. So when I finally got my turn, because it was always debates became, first it was two against one, then three against one. This was five against one. So I started getting, you know, actually instead of frustrating, a little bit humbled by it because I thought, well, I guess they think it takes five to debate me. But anyway, when it got back around to my time, I said, you know, if I gave you a document written in Hebrew and all you spoke was Portuguese, you'd have no idea what was in this document. You would be guessing and most likely you would be horribly you know, butchering it. I said, I see the problem. Our founding fathers spoke fluent biblical worldview. You don't speak it, I do, so let me interpret this document for you. Now, that was probably not very gracious, but it was true. She didn't speak it, and, um, and so I was able to break some of this down. And so this is the problem today. We have these documents. They're written from Judeo-Christian ideology. De Tocqueville even said they were all of one mind, one mind. They all spoke Judeo-Christian understanding. Now, why did I make the distinction of that doesn't necessarily mean that they were all saved? Because as Christians, what do we know? Who knows the heart? God alone. Scripture says God alone knows the heart. It says we judge from the outward, but God judges the heart. It's another reason why it's not good to have hate crimes legislation because we want the civil government to judge our actions. We want actions to be punished. But only God has jurisdiction over the heart. And so, um, you know, when these people, when they say, well, they were Christians, we don't really know for sure who was saved. 
But what we do know is how they thought about the framework of government. And that's also important because I, wa- I want to give you some examples. And honey, if I forget, remind me to come back to create a redeemer uh, distinction. But I want to give you some examples of what a biblical worldview looks like as far as governmental structure. So in governmental structure, the Bible talks about jurisdictions. That word's not necessarily in there, but if you study the Bible, you see it very clearly. There are areas that the Bible says this area is your personal jurisdiction. And what's one area of that? We're the only ones that get to decide whether we accept Jesus as our Savior. That's why there's no grandchildren in heaven. No one else can force it. Even God won't choose for us. Even though he tells us, I've set before you life and death and blessing and cursing, please choose life. But um, we're the only ones who can choose that. That's our personal jurisdiction. And then you have familial jurisdiction. You have areas that God says the family is supposed to govern over this. And we see some of those examples, which, you know, provision and education. What are we supposed to do? Train up a child in the way they should go. And, you know, we can, we can delegate that. Like, my daughter does speak Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew. I couldn't teach it to her, so I delegated it to her Hebrew professor. But I can't assign it. Meaning, when I stand before God, who's responsible for how my children walked and whether or not they were taught of the things of God? It's not her Hebrew professor's job. So it's a family obligation. It's family, not government. What about benevolence and philanthropy? What does the scripture talk about? True religion undefiled is what? It's caring for the widow and the orphan. It's why they even appointed Stephen to set up and go to minister for the widows. So we have, as individual members of the body of Christ, a duty to care for our brother. But as corporate body of Christ, we definitely have an obligation for caring for the needs of those around us. And then what does the Bible say about civil government? In Romans, it talks very clearly. It says that it is to be the terror of the sword for those who do evil. That's why it's appropriate for them to to make sure that no one, think of it like a shepherd with sheep. The shepherd is there to beat off the wolves to keep you safe so you can live your life. And that's what they're there for, to beat off those who would do wrong, who would come, and who would steal, kill, and destroy. And that even includes the government itself. The government is not supposed to come in and take our rights and our liberties. So what happens, though, when you have the government that's supposed to, and by the way, if you think about that realm, which is probably the tiniest area of authority? It's a civil government, little bitty, teeny tiny. And yet, what do we see today? How much does the government encroach into those areas we talked about? Does it encroach into our church obligations of benevolence and philanthropy? Absolutely. Do they do it well? No. I don't know a single government that has a heart so it doesn't really love their brother who's hurting. What it does is it takes the sword, the tear of the sword, and it points and it forces people to love their brothers and it causes dependence 
and it causes bitterness and enmity against one another. And it also is a Jezebel Ahab spirit because when you have one authority that's abdicated and another that takes it that was not God-given, it's all out of whack. And yet we get used to these things, don't we? And we think, oh, well, that's good because the government is doing something that's good. No, this is the problem. What we have to understand is the government doing an action, whether that action is good or bad, is not the point. It's did God choose to give the civil government that authority to do that act? Because if he didn't, it's not going to work. Did God give the government the authority to train up our children in the way they should go? No. And did God give the government the authority to decide whether or not we use our giftings and talents in a way that goes contrary to the dictates of our conscience? What happened with the Masterpiece Cake case? You all are familiar with that. And, and the point is that when the government forces us to take an action, instead of us doing it, being compelled by love to do what God is calling us to do in that realm of jurisdiction that God has given us, it gets very messed up. And we, then what happens is you have a more and more and more expansive government that invades into areas it was never intended to do, and we see the fruit of it. And, oh, by the way, for every power the government has, how does it get that? How does the government get power? Does it just inherently have it? No. It gets it from us. It's, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just authority from the consent of the governed. There's a whole lot in there, and I don't have time to unpack it all, but the reality is that God, when you believe, when a society believes in the Judeo-Christian tenets that our founding fathers put in place, you believe in a creator God. And you believe God is the one who gives us certain rights. And so those rights that he grants to us that we have control over that the only way government gets power is when, through our consent, we allow them. Here's a little bit of power. Here's a little bit of power. Here's a little bit of power. On the scales of justice, which societies do you think throughout all of history function the best and the most free? The ones that are top-heavy in government power and low on individual liberty? No, that is tyranny. That is dictatorial control. What you want is what our founders put in place, which is the Mayflower Compact. It's for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith, but it could only exist because of self-governance. In a society where people take their liberties and govern themselves, the government can be very, very, very small. And that's what we want because that is God's framework. And so going back to the creator-redeemer distinction, when they put this in place, they understood when they said all men are created equal. How many people does that put in relationship with their creator as creator and creation? Everyone. Everyone. And because of that, all men have certain rights and liberties. Not only life, 
Liberty and Pursuit of Happiness, which is they actually go together, and that's a sermon for another day because it could take a whole long time. But basically, we know we have the rights to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, don't we? That's why the First Amendment, just so you know, the government didn't give us the Bill of Rights. They only, they actually didn't even want to put the Bill of Rights in place because they said, why would we have a Bill of Rights with a government, a federal government that's so small and has so limited power that they can't touch these things? But they did it just as a protection. They knew those rights came from God, that we inherently possessed them, that we had a right to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, and we had a right to freedom of speech and all of these rights, and that Congress was not supposed to impede against them. So why is the creator-redeemer distinction important? Because everybody is in relationship with God as their creator. That's why we all have rights. But they also knew not everybody would be in relationship with God as their redeemer. That's something that we choose. And which jurisdiction does that go to? It goes back to our personal jurisdiction. It is because they understood a biblical worldview that they understood the creator-redeemer distinction, that they understood we had a First Amendment right of religious liberties. And yet we're in a society of secular humanists where they take offense to the fact that we talk about Judeo-Christian principles. The reality is what happens to an unalienable right to worship or not worship God according to the dictates of your conscience if you get rid of a creator God? If the creator's the one who's giving you your rights, those rights go away. They don't exist. They simply don't exist. So the very thing that they are fighting as far as enabling the greatest freedom in any nation is the very basis for that to be established. Because if you put any other framework of law in place, other than a Judeo-Christian framework, there are no liberties that are inherent that everybody possesses that cannot be trampled on. There just simply aren't. And certainly not in a democratic society where it's mob rule and everybody can vote by the women caprice of whatever they want. There are no liberties and rights that cannot be abridged. Um, so, you know, I want to I switch now because that was a little bit academic. And uh, what you said is I'm an ambassador for Christ. So, yes, I have been a law professor. I have studied our constitutional common law framework, and I can talk about that at length. And hopefully I didn't put you all to sleep by talking through those principles. But the reality is the reason I do that, the reason I talk about these things is because I'm in love with Jesus. And I know that he not only leads us to life, he is life. He is life. And so when we see these principles that get in place that are, that are so oppressive, I mean, think about socialism, that government is our provider. What does our Bible say? Jehovah Jireh, my provider, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. But the problem is we don't really believe that, do we? So because we don't believe that, we look to man, we look to the government to be our source. And God wants to set us free from that because he really is that good. He really is a good God. And we don't want to sell our soul or our birthright for a bowl of stew. And so God's principles work. But this is the thing. We quote Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves 
pray. Seek my face. Turn from their wicked ways. Then he says what? I will heal. I will hear from heaven. I will heal the land. So what I see is happening is that we, we're praying. We're humbling ourselves. Many times we're turning from our wicked ways. But I don't really see that we're seeking his face. And this is why I'm saying this is because why do we not understand how government's supposed to function? Is because my people perish for lack of knowledge. That's not head knowledge. That's knowledge of knowing him and knowing his face and knowing how he operates. That's that intimate place like Abraham knew Sarah. And if we seek his face, not his hand, to know him and be known by him, he brings revelation and he brings understanding. And the words lift off the page of the Bible for us to know and understand Just like I said with Joshua, it's not which side are you on. It's am I on your side? And as we read the Bible, he speaks to everything. And the beauty is he speaks about how to heal a land. And I've shared this briefly, but in the book of Haggai, it gives a blueprint of what it looks like for a land to be healed. And we know God can do it suddenly. He can do it then suddenly. He can heal us, save a nation in a day. But... It talks about the prophet, the priest, the prince, and the people. And when they all came together, there was an awakening in the nation. And what happened? There was a prophetic word of God to Joshua and Zerubbabel. And who's Joshua? He's reflective of what? The priestly, it's the kingly priestly anointing. Well, after we learned about jurisdictions, what would that be? That would be the ecclesia. That would be the ecclesiastical jurisdiction. And then who's Zerubbabel? He was the governor of Judah. So what is that a picture of based on what we learned? That's the civil jurisdiction. And so the prophetic word came to both areas. Now, the interesting thing is the Bible talks about how there's a new prophetic word for each generation. It says David fulfilled all the works for his generation. And guess what? David's works were different than what Solomon was called to, aren't they? Because Solomon was called to peace. What about, you had Joseph and Moses, Moses, totally different. Joseph was pulling them into Egypt for provision, and Moses was walking them out. So you have to know, what is God's word for this day? That prophetic word. And I believe his prophetic word is liberty through grace. But as that word came out to Zerubbabel and Joshua, what happens when the word of God, the revelatory prophetic word of the day, gets into the ecclesia as Joshua pulls this out? What do you see in the church? That's when you see revival. And when it goes into the civil government, what do you see? That's when you see reformation. And when it pours over to the people, where the people start changing, where a nation be saved in a day, that's when you get an awakening. Revival plus reformation to the people brings an awakening. And that's what we want. 
And we keep stopping short with revival in the church. But if we don't understand that God intends it not just for one jurisdiction, but for both jurisdictions in order for there to be transformation, you know, we say take the gospel to the nations. Well, nations includes governments. That's when there is transformation. But I said the prophetic word that I believe that the Lord, as I've been praying into this, what is your word, is liberty through grace. Because we sang several songs this morning, and Iverson talks about liberty, liberty, liberty. Who's the father of liberty? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There is no liberty, true liberty, outside of Christ, because liberty is not the freedom to do whatever you want. That's licentiousness. Liberty is the freedom to do what's right and to not be in bondage. And so that only comes from God. And we had that message in our nation's inception, but the thing is, right now, I don't believe that any nation has ever fully understood the gospel of grace, like we talked about at the beginning. That grace that true understanding of him being on the cross saying, it is finished. That true understanding of you can't do it wrong when you are seeking his face. You're seeking his face. You can step into a congressional race and it can look like everybody's coming after you. So what? I knew that I was pursuing God and his grace is sufficient his grace. And let me just tell you this. What's really exciting is in this climate today, you're praying about politicians, you know, not being so mean. The thing is, in this climate where they, people actually wear as a badge of honor being the ugliest and the most hateful. Look in social media. Saying the most hateful, horrible things. In that day and age, to be someone where the hate and the venom is coming at you, you know what? Yes, it hurts at first, but then I start realizing we don't fl- wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in high places. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And so I know who hates me, and they may look like faces, but they're not. It's the same one who hates every single person who's ever been alive. And my prayer is, God, bring me to the place where I can truly say, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The bitterness and the anger and the division has to stop. The wearing of labels of us against them, we do that in spades, and it has to stop. God is not about divisiveness. He is about unity, and it comes through his heart, and his principles always bear fruit. And guess what? He is not the one who points us to love, just like life. He doesn't point us to life or to truth. He is the life and the truth, and he is the love. And that that is where God wants us to work. And I will tell you, of all the compliments that I got during the entire campaign was at the very end of the convention, I had someone walk up to me, and she said, you know, they were pleased to crush you. They said all manner of evil of you. They did these backroom deals and games so that no matter what, you you couldn't win. And she said, but when they crushed you, what they smelled was the sweet-smelling aroma of the presence of Jesus Christ. And I teared up because he is the only one 
in ourselves, there is no goodness but his righteousness. And if they can see Christ, if the world can truly see Christ, what does it say? If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men. And it's not his will that any should perish, but all should come to a saving knowledge. If the world could truly see that, if they could truly understand what we in the, in the church profess of it is finished. That he is really that good. And that's my prayer, is that in everything I do, that that's what people see. That they don't see me, but they see him. That he will be lifted up. And that I believe as we do that, that for our nation, the latter glory will be greater than the former. Who cares about the clouds if we're together to sing a song and bring the sunny weather? Happy trails to you till we meet again.